In the previous episode, I talked about the positivity component of what you do. Your positivity sets the direction to whether you build trust or reduce trust during an interaction. In this episode, I'll talk about the two components that accelerate the impact that positivity has on building trust, time and intimacy. Time is the frequency and length of interactions, and intimacy is the level of communication, and it ranges from words only, text and email messages, to in-person, face-to-face communications, and even more. I'm not sure this could take two episodes. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7 of The Trust Show. I'm your host, Yoram Solomon, a researcher of trust and the author of The Book of Trust. In this educational podcast, I will challenge you to think differently about trust through the eight laws of trust and the six components of trustworthiness. But I will not only teach you about trust, I will also give you actionable advice on how to build trust, be trusted, and know who to trust because the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? To summarize where we are now in the trust model, there are six components that affect your trustworthiness, and as a result, the trust that other people may have in you, because you can control only your own trustworthiness and not the other person's trustability or willingness to trust others in general, not just you. The six components are divided into two groups, who you are and what you do. What you do is the dynamic part of trustworthiness. It's what you do during an interaction. We already talked about positivity, which sets the direction of building trust or declining trust. Now, I'll talk about accelerating it and more. I'll start with time. There are three metrics that I use when I talk about time. The first one is length, the duration of interactions. And this can vary from being a very short interaction to being a very long interaction. And the longer the interaction is, within reason, because you don't want to have interactions that are just too long, uh, but the longer the interaction is, the more you build trust, the more you have opportunity to build trust, or I should say the more you have an opportunity for your positivity that you bring into the interaction to have an effect on building trust. The shorter the interaction is, obviously, the less the other person gets exposed to your positivity, and so trust is going to take longer to develop. The second metric is frequency. How often do you meet? The longer time goes between interactions, the less trust you're going to build or the longer it's going to take you to build trust. Remember that there we have this self-defense mechanism that between interactions, we kind of lose trust in the other person. And I talked about that previously. 
uh, when I talked about the dynamic nature of trust. So the more often you meet with the other person, the more, again, they get exposed to the positivity that you bring, whether it's positive or negative. And if it's positive, it will build trust faster. Uh, If it's negative, it will destroy trust faster. And the third one is kind of a new one that, that I'm talking about now is rhythm. And that is how predictable uh, your interactions are. Uh, and, and predictable not in content, but predictable in occurrence. So if, for example, we're going to meet every Monday at 8, that predictability increases trust. In general, there is a link between trust and predictability. If, if you can predict the other person's behavior, uh, you know that you can trust them to, to a certain level that, that correlates with that predictability. The same would apply to just having the interactions. If the interactions are predictable, you know that you're going to meet with that person on a predictable rhythm, then you trust them more, or at least you accelerate the positivity's impact, your positivity's positivity's impact on building trust. Why is time affecting trust uh, altogether? I I remember when when I got my driver's license, uh, I used to drive a stick shift uh, car. And and that that was the majority of cars. Uh, Automatic transmissions only started coming out. Maybe they existed before, but not so much where where I was, and and they were a lot more expensive. And really, automatic transmissions only had three gears, so they weren't as as good or as powerful as stick shift cars. And I remember thinking about getting an automatic transmission car or an automatic car and, and thinking, I don't know if I can trust this mechanism. Then there was cruise control. And when cruise control came out, I started wondering, you know, this thing takes control over my accelerator. So what would happen if I get too close to the car in front of me? We didn't have radar back then that that would actually affect cruise control or or disconnect cruise control. But what would happen if, if I just crash into the car in front of me because cruise control took over the car? So it took a while to start trusting cruise control. Then there were self-parking cars and now autonomous cars. And I asked people in, in workshops that I deliver, would you trust an autonomous car sitting in the back with nobody sitting in front? And most people still say no. And typically when I ask this question, a few people would raise their hands and say that they do trust the autonomous car. And I'm willing to bet these are people who do have autonomous car. So why do they trust it and I don't? Is it that they're braver? Is is it because they're more reckless? Is it that I'm risk averse? No, because they had more time with an autonomous car to get to trust it. Because the longer time you spend with something or someone, the more you get to trust them. And, And, you know, the statistics, at least the ones that I read, show that Autonomous vehicles are 3.2 times less prone to end, to to get into an accident than a human-driven car for every 100,000 miles. So they're safer, but we don't trust them because we don't have enough experience. And, and you know, I don't even want to ask if you would trust an autonomous flying vehicle 
to get into one? Because I'm going to guess the answer is no. And, and I'm going to guess that 20 years from now, when this is very pervasive, and this is going to be maybe a very standard mode of transportation, that we're all going to trust it because, you know, nothing bad has happened and we have enough experience and we have spent enough time with it. So this is one of the ways in which time has a correlation to the level of trust, or at least it accelerates the positivity. I mean, if you have multiple interactions with a person and they're negative one after the other, you accelerate the reduction of trust. But if you have positive interactions with a person or a person has positive interactions with you, the more, the longer, the more frequent, the more predictable those interactions are, the more they're going to trust you. When I wrote the Book of Trust, I interviewed several people, and one of them was Floyd McClendon, who was a 15-year, if I remember correctly, Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL. And he was telling me this story about going with his team. This was a four-man team and, and a dog. And they went downrange in Afghanistan. And uh, at some point, they were hit. They, they, they got into an ambush. The dog kind of sniffed it out. So, so they were ready and they started shooting. But, but it was interesting to see what Floyd McClendon has done. Because what he did, he was holding the machine gun. He turned backwards. So while everybody was shooting towards the ambush, he was facing backwards. And, and I asked him, why did you do that? He said, that was my role. My role was to protect their back. So I had their back, literally. And I asked him, weren't you afraid? You know, people are shooting at you and you're turning your back to them. And he said, just like I have my, my team members' backs, my brother's backs, as he called them, they have mine, and I trust them. And you have to wonder what gets a person to trust that much. And I started asking him, how long have you known those other three members of your team? And as it turns out, all the way from buds from their basic uh, Navy SEAL training uh, through Hell Week and, and everything else, so all the training that they went, but they were they were together for seven years. They were downrange. They were in action together for seven years. Those are not seven years that are, you know, I'm going to see you once a month. Those are seven years where you pretty much spend 24 hours at the harshest conditions with the other members of your team. I mean, talk about all the three components of time that affect building trust. So after those seven years, you can't wonder anymore. You, you can't be surprised at the level of trust that he has in them and that they had in him. So how long do you need to build trust, to be trusted, to be trustworthy? You may remember from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, uh, he quoted a, a study that was done by Ericsson in, uh, not Ericsson, the company, the Ericsson, the researcher uh, in, in um, Sweden, where he coined the 10,000 hour rule. And, and that rule applied really to a violin player. And wh what's the point where you become, you know, an, an expert, you become one in a million in your field. So does it take 10,000 hours? How long does it take? I don't have the answer to that. All I do know 
is that it takes time. This is a marathon. This is not a sprint. It is not something, trust is not something that's going to be built in seconds, minutes, or hours. It takes time for it to reach a certain level. But not all time is made equal. Not all time has the same impact on building trust or destroying trust. If you remember the book Blink from, again, Malcolm Gladwell, one of my uh, most favorite uh, authors, he talked about this first impression, your ability to form an opinion on something in in the first several minutes or or 15 minutes or, or an hour. There was a study done, I believe, in 2013 uh, that was uh, sponsored by Microsoft in Canada that measured our attention span. And what it found was that between the year 2000 and 2012, our attention span has declined, has shortened from 12 seconds to 8 seconds compared to the attention span of a goldfish, which is a goldfish, which is 9 seconds. Which brings uh, three questions. One is, why do we have such a short attention span? Two, why did it decline? It it lost 30-something percent over a period of those 12 years. And three, how exactly do you measure the attention span of a goldfish? But we do have a special place in our brain for that first impression. And and here's something that I do uh, during workshops. Uh, One of the questions that I ask is, do you know who the first man was to walk on the moon? Do you? Do you know who was the first man to walk on the moon? Most likely, you know, it was Neil Armstrong and most of my my participants in my workshops would know that it was Neil Armstrong. And I would follow up with the question, who was the second person to walk on the moon? I think this is where I lose about 80 to 90% of people and only 10 to maybe 20% know that it was Buzz Aldrin. He was the second man to walk on the moon. We remember the first one, Neil Armstrong. We remember what he said, but we don't necessarily remember the second one. Let me go a step further. Do you know how many missions were when we landed on the moon, when we had people land on the moon? Can you name the second mission? Can you tell me when it was? Can you tell me who was there? So there were actually six missions. We landed on the moon. People, Americans, landed on the moon six times. The second mission was Apollo 12. It was on November 19, 1969, which is only four months after the first landing. And the first man to walk on the moon on the second landing was Pete Conrad. You don't know that. This is how much impact the first impression have on us. Who was the first president? That's right, George Washington. Who was the second one? Just lost 90% of my audience. Only 10% may know that it was John Adams. First person to cross the Atlantic in an airplane. I'm sorry, first person to cross the Atlantic in an airplane. Charles Lindbergh, right. Who's the second one? Amelia Earhart. And there's this statement that um, Ernest Hemingway made uh, that you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. Over time, the impact of one more interaction, one more hour of interaction, one more minute, one more day of interactions becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. And we start stabilizing on a certain level of 
trust that we have in other people or that other people have in us. This is, this is where the role of the who you are is starting to take over much more than the what you do, even though what you do still have a big impact, but it's not as much as in the first interaction, the first impression. So it is very important that you don't only think about the time that you spend with another person in terms of how often, how long, how rhythmic, but it's important that you pay extra attention to the first interactions, the first part of an interaction, because that has a bigger impact as a first impression on, again, the translation, the acceleration of the positivity into trust. So the first actions that you take, if they're positive, are going to have a lot more impact on building trust during this interaction and overall than what you do an hour later. An hour later will just have a smaller impact because the other person is already forming an opinion of you. This is also why it's so much harder to fix trust issues with someone that you know for a long time. You are much less likely to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know them long enough that the level of trust that you have in them is somewhat established and for them to all of a sudden change it, obviously it's much easier for them to lose it than to gain it simply because bad is much stronger than good. And I talked about that when I talked about positivity in the previous episode. But that's why it's so much harder to fix trust after you've known someone and have established your position or, or your perception of how trustworthy they are. Enough about time, let's go to intimacy. Intimacy has its own parameters or metrics, and those are the richness of the intimacy and the consistency of that intimacy. I'll start with the richness. It's the simpler one. It's from words only, when you communicate only using words, to communicate uh, communicating face-to-face in person. Using words would be when you only send emails or text messages. They're, they're only words. Words are very easy to misinterpret. So think about this. I'm going to give you three words. No, thank, and you. No, thank you. And there are different ways to, to read this. If, if I wrote it differently in, in a text message, for example, imagine this. I wrote no, comma, thank you, period. What do I mean? First of all, what it would sound like in your head would be no, thank you. And that means that I, you offered me something and my reply was no, thank you. I, I don't need that, but thank you for offering. That, that's pretty much what it sounds like. Let me change the punctuation a little and capitalization. So now imagine the word no is capitalized with an exclamation mark and the word thank you is succeeded with an exclamation mark. What does that sound like? It sounds like no, thank you. That means it's not just that I'm thanking, I'm not really thanking you. I'm, I'm just saying, okay, stop, stop it. Don't offer that anymore. This is typically how we would respond to a telemarketer who's calling and trying to offer us something. I'm going to go no, Thank you. Third attempt. The word no is uh, spelled correctly and not capitalized, comma, think. The word you is all capitalized with an exclamation mark. 
This would sound in your head, no, thank you. What do I mean by that? Well, you probably thanked me for something and I'm saying, oh no, don't thank me. It's you that needs to be thanked. So no, thank you. Those are exactly the same three words. Now imagine if I did not use any punctuation, which unfortunately some of the younger people today don't use punctuation. They don't even put a period at the end of a statement. You have to figure out where the end of the statement was. So I'm just saying the words no thank you and, and you don't exactly know what I meant. A friend of mine, Tim, gave me uh, another example. Uh, he used this, uh, this sentence, I didn't take your money. And then he started emphasizing different words. The first one was, I didn't take your money, which means that somebody else did. I didn't take your money. Maybe I did something else. I didn't take your money. Maybe I just borrowed it. I didn't take your money, which means I took somebody else's money. I didn't take your money, which means I took something else. Same five words, different emphasis. But what if you put it just in writing? You can't even tell what the emphasis is and what did I really mean? And there are five different things that I could have meant. There's a, uh, I, I don't know how famous it is, but it's a 2018 case, uh, federal lawsuit in Maine where the Maine dairy delivery drivers won $5 million in a settlement because of the words, now, actually it's not even the words, it's where the comma was in a certain statement. I'm not going to go into the details of that, but the court, the federal court had to determine that based on where the comma was in the statement, they actually earned overtime and they should have been paid more and they were eventually paid $5 million more. The first level of richness of intimacy is words. We covered that. The next is using your tone of voice. So I remember after I got my pilot's license in California, in, in Silicon Valley, I used to take friends with me from San Jose to fly over the Golden Gate Bridge. Even after 9-11, as long as you flew over 1,600 feet and below 2,100 feet, you didn't have even have to be uh, controlled with or communicating with air traffic controller. But anyway, this, this one day, I was taking uh, friends uh, with me in the plane. Uh, I think we had a full plane, uh, three other passengers other than myself uh, as the pilot. And everybody had their headsets and we're all communicating over the uh, intercom. And at some point, one of my friends said, hey, do the pilot's voice. And I'm thinking... I, I have no idea what you're talking about. What do you mean the pilot's voice? Come on, you, you know what I mean. Do the pilot's voice. Do the pilot's voice. I, I, you know, I still, I have no idea what he's talking about. But I kept on taxiing and at some point I needed to talk to the tower. And when I needed to talk to the tower, I said, hey, guys, listen, uh, I'm going to be talking to the tower since everything that they're going to hear here, everything you're going to say, they're going to hear over the radio. So I need you to be quiet while I talk to the tower. Okay. Okay. And then I uh, pressed the transmit button. And as soon as I pressed the transmit button, what I said was, Reed Hillview Tower, uh, Cherokee 3016 Tango is uh, ready to go at uh, 31 uh, right. Then it hit me. I did use the pilot's voice. I could have just said, 
Reed Hillview Tower, Cherokee 3016 Tango is ready to go at 3-1 right. But no, I had to tell the tower something beyond just the words. I had to tell the tower that I'm the meanest, baddest, coolest person around here and you don't tell me what to do because I know what I'm doing. And that was conveyed not with the words. It was conveyed with how I use those words. So a, a richer way of communicating during an interaction is instead of using just words, using your tone of voice. Let me take it one step further. And the step further would be, I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something. Okay, do something for me. Take your, your index finger of your right hand. Follow my instruction carefully. Take your index finger of your right hand. Touch your forehead. Touch your nose. Touch your chin. I'm willing to bet that you did that exactly the way I described. Except that when I do that in a workshop, I do something a little different. Instead of touching the chin, I say touch the chin, but I put my index finger on the cheek. I can tell you that more than 80% of people put their finger on their cheek because that's what they see me do. They don't pay attention to the fact that I said chin. The funny thing is, I have a slide behind me that has the word chin on it, but it has a picture of a woman touching her cheek and an arrow pointing to the cheek. There was an ad for an auto supply company back in 1927 that said, one look is worth a thousand words. That's kind of where it's coming from. Actually, there was another variation, I believe, in 1906, first time this came in print. But this is what we know, that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? Peter Drucker said that the most important thing in communication is to hear what isn't being said. Churchill said, I no longer listen to what people say, I just watch what they do. Behavior never lies. The more, the richer the communication is, the more is being conveyed. I'm going to get back to Albert Morabian at, at some point in his Silent Messages book uh, from 1971. He's the person that coined the 738.55 rule. This is one of the most misquoted rules ever. Because people think that what it says is that 7% of uh, your communication is conveyed through words, 38% through your tone of voice, and 55% through your body language. It's not true. This is not what he's talking about. He was not talking about communication. He was talking about liking and feeling. But in our case, when we're talking about trust, trust is related to liking and feeling and not so much the content of those words. And therefore, his research applies here so much more. I may disagree with his research, but I'm going to come back to it and talk about it later. What a surprise. We're getting close to the 30-minute uh, mark, and I'm still not done. I still have one part to talk about, which I'll talk about in the next episode. But to kind of summarize uh, where we, what we covered this time, I talked about two factors that would accelerate the, I'm not going to say building trust, but it's the impact that your positivity that you bring into an interaction would have on your trustworthiness. 
or the trust that another person has in you. When I talked about time, I mentioned three metrics, the length, the interactions, they're short, they're long, the frequency, how often do you interact with the other person, and the rhythm, how predictable are those interactions, at, at least in point in time. Those are the three metrics for time. The longer they are, the interactions are, the faster you build trust or the faster your positivity impacts building trust. The more frequent they are, the faster you build trust. The more predictable, rhythmic they are, the, the more on a certain cadence they are, the faster you build trust. The second component is, and I also talked about first impression and the importance of the first interaction, the first minute of an interaction, the first hour of an interaction, even the first eight seconds of an interaction. The second component is intimacy. And uh, in intimacy, I talked about richness and consistency. In this episode, I talked about richness going from words only to face-to-face, in-person, body language through the tone of voice. And in the next episode, I'll complete this and talk about consistency because the consistency is very important here. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll make sure to answer it or find the answer to it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. That's Y-O-R-A-M at thetrustshow.com. If you like this podcast episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get new episodes. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings would help others who are looking for a podcast just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, Look up my online course at trustedatwork.com. Find my books on Amazon or go to my website, yoramsolomon.com. And remember one thing, the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening.